0: Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, as the year comes to an end, we find ourselves surrounded by, or maybe being, people (laughs) who are holding on to seemingly incommensurable sets of beliefs and ideas. And those sets of beliefs and ideas are being held onto so tightly, more tightly, not less tightly, as the ship seems to be aimless into 2021. While some of you might be finding a sense of relief in the changing of the guard in the U.S. and the presence of a vaccine, many other people feel agitated by both. Or maybe you're one of the people who feels agitated. This was the year that one community one group of people uh, would try to dominate and humiliate other communities and other groups of people. That seemed to be the rule of the year. Uh, but at the same time, within those communities, you'd see amazing outpourings of mutual aid, of togetherness, of new demands for the structures that are supposed to be serving us. So. That's a very interesting conundrum, and I want to understand all of this. I want to think through all of it and have a conversation about belief and politics and the unknown. So I invited my friends Peter Rollins and Elliot Morgan to the show. Peter is a psychoanalytic philosopher and theologian. He's been on the show before three times, in fact, (laughs) on episode 14, 55, and 70, uh, along with Todd McGowan on episode 70. But these days, One of his projects is hosting the podcast The Fundamentalists with Elliot Morgan. Elliot is a comedian and part of the wildly popular online entertainment comedy group The Valley Folk. On each episode of The Fundamentalists, Elliot comes to Peter basically with his everyday but perceptive concerns about the world. What's on his mind? What's he anxious about? (laughs) What's bothering him? And Peter pulls those concerns apart with psychoanalysis. And philosophy. And with each episode, in my opinion, this show has been getting better and better. Um, As Elliot and Peter sort of begin to see each other in different ways across their divide and understanding and their perspectives, uh, and as they learn about each other, there's this really interesting uh, growth that happens between them and also just on the show in general. I love it. This conversation that I have with Peter and Elliot, I think is a very special conversation um, for this show because of that belief piece, that ideology piece, because Peter and Elliot and I all have different pathways through belief in our lives. So Peter has this sort of strange revelation upon seeing an exorcism take place after he leaves the theater. He'd just seen Gremlins 2 (laughs) with his friend, we, we talk about all of these on the show. It's how we open the show. And Elliot had this church experience with uh, pastors who would touch people and make them burst into laughter. Mine was, well, mine sounds boring next to those two, but it's just growing up without much religion and then finding my life infused with occult philosophy. And we each have different psychological structures, which we discuss on the show using uh, Jacques Lacan, the analyst philosopher as a sort of starting point for understanding them, and we each have different intellectual mentors and perspectives. Lately, Elliot has taken up Jungian psychology, which does stand in some opposition to Peter's Lacanian and Hegelian view, and both in some opposition to my occult view, which is deeply informed by Rudolf Steiner. So we spend a lot of this episode fleshing out some of those differences and nuances, how current events, how thinking, how the unconscious and more can be seen from each perspective. And so gradually throughout this episode, you get this sense of a sort of peace process. Not because Peter and Elliot and I were in some sort of deep conflict to begin with, although I fucking hate them. No, I'm just kidding. I love them both. (laughs) But because the ideas and ways of living and structures of the psyche meet each other, and rest with each other without violent disagreement of the, with the other. So this episode is presenting three people, not necessarily trying to resolve their contradictions, and certainly not trying to win out over the other one, but rather simply taking an interest in one another. And in some ways, I think that offers an antidote to clinging to belief on the mast of a sinking ship, (laughs) whether that ship is the society we live in or our economy or our culture uh, or our politics. So I'm very excited to share this episode with you. And um, since we're reaching the end of the year, I want to just put in a little pitch for meaning here, for meaningfulness. I think that people have begun, at least begun in some way, to understand how valuable the works of art, the media, the aspects of life they find meaningful are. I know that this podcast holds meaning for many of you listening to it. And if you're a new listener, maybe this episode will hold meaning for you. So please do go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support it. Patreon.com forward slash C O N N E R H A B I B. I've done a lot of amazing shows this year in the midst of this global crisis. I talked about the state of the world and punk with Ian Mackay of Fugazi and Discord Records. I talked about philosophy and mythologies of our time with the theorist Svedko Horvat. Um, I had an interview with the late great uh, anthropologist and anarchist thinker David Graeber, with the alternative health trailblazer, Paul Check, anti-work feminist, Kathy Weeks, empire theorist, Michael Hart. The list goes on and on. I mean, you can see that it's a quite a diverse group of people that have been on the show, but they're all bringing forth the things that are meaningful. And I tried to make sure that we are in conversation, not just sort of blank, kind of boring sometimes interview, but real conversation about the things that really matter most to our hearts. These conversations are, and I'm so grateful for this. They're starting deep conversation between listeners. And I've been hearing back from people, you know, quite a bit over the years. And it's awesome. Stirring rich and intense and creative thoughts in the people that listen. And they're also just fun to listen to. I think it's really important to turn away from things that aren't really giving to you or giving back to the world. But I don't ever want to trade in fun and pleasure for that. You know, um, at least not with this podcast. Of course, there are some things that are just really serious and difficult, but I don't want to trade in fun and pleasure uh, for meaning and value. So if you value the show, if you find it meaningful, and you find it fun and enriching and pleasurable, please do support the show via Patreon, patreon patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Your contribution makes a huge difference. It's how I was able to do this show and really focus on it this whole year and put out all those episodes. And thank you to all those who do support the show. Subscribe to it. Listen to the backlog. Enjoy it. Give it five stars on iTunes. All that other stuff. Okay. So now, on to my conversation with the co-hosts of the Fundamentalist podcast, Elliot Morgan and Peter Rollins. Here we go. Hey everybody! It's against everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Peter Rollins and Elliot Morgan. Hi. Hello. Hi, Connor. Can we say hello? Or are you doing
1: a bit of a spiel? Or are
0: we just interrupting you? I've what already do do? done. Tell us what we
2: do. Hold our hands. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, it's going to take a lot to get through this one, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Uh, so, what I wanted to do this episode something a little different. Um I wanted to start with our sort of journeys through belief how that relates to our belief in God and sort of take that into what we're viewing as happening now how belief is affecting the world for us but also for others how that's playing out but I think I wanted to do that because I realized that the three of us have very different sort of probably belief progressions in our lives and where we've ended up. And we've all obviously, well, Pete's kind of the fulcrum, you know, between you and I, Elliot, but we've all sort of interacted um, Mm -hmm. over this topic as well. So um, maybe Pete, since you have talked about this um, so many times, maybe you could start and trace
2: that. Make Pete do it. Yeah, Yeah. Pete, you start.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Um,
1: Okay. Okay. I suppose, actually, I grew up in a very um, kind of like a secular household uh, where religion was quietly there. My dad had a very quiet belief in God, uh, but it wasn't really something that was talked about. And I actually don't think I seriously asked those metaphysical questions at all in my youth. Um, I wasn't the smartest kid, uh, failed every exam, never thought about anything that serious Until the age of 17, when I went to see Gremlins or Gremlins 2 at the cinema. And I came out of the Gremlins, (laughs) (laughs) I came out of that uh, with a group of friends. And there were some people doing Jesus mimes. uh, And I'd never seen this before. And I kind of watched these people do weird mimes about Jesus uh, and rap about Jesus. And I went across the road and started talking to these people. And the weirdest thing was I had the most profound conversations I probably ever had in my life with this group of people. Um, And I don't know, you know, I don't want to go into how interesting this is, but one of my friends uh, had an exorcism right there outside the cinema in East Belfast, rolling around and screaming while people were praying over him. And um, I was, I find this very interesting and weird. And... I uh, the next week didn't think about it, but the next week I was just getting ready to go out, um, and on Saturday night I was going to a party, and then I just burst into tears, and I ran back to the church, which is like about thirty minutes away. Ran all the way there, into it, and it, the doors were open. Went in, and there was this little prayer meeting, and uh, and some of them had been praying for me. Uh, I didn't know this, but I had this kind of like very tearful experience. Um, weirder things happened but anyway that was when i took an interest in god and religion and now i don't have a traditional belief in god in the same way i did but at that age that's what birthed my my interest in these questions of uh, the nature of the absolute uh the nature of god and then i started eventually studying philosophy
0: yeah so for my part i would say you know i grew up um also, I grew up in an, a completely a religious household. Um, my mother was raised by Gideons, the people who placed the Bibles in mm-hmm. hotel dresser drawers and all that. So she was raised by fundamentalists, not your podcast, but uh, actual fundamentalists. And she. We would have known. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for really we doing a number on her. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> my father is from Syria. So he was from a, a very small village in the mountains of Syria that. Had a kind of blend of Christian and nomadic people's beliefs, and so when he emigrated to the U.S., there wasn't really an approximate, you know, religion. There was a, a Syrian Orthodox Church, eventually, where sort of near where we grew up, but it wasn't the same. And so I was kind of just raised with nothing. Although my mother took me to, uh, you know, Presbyterian services every once in a while. I was like, "Do you like this? What do you think?" But in the meantime, for some reason, I mean, I grew up in a very religious area um, in small-town Pennsylvania. For some reason that it seized my imagination and I was writing always these little essays about religion and basically ontology, like, you know, how how does the universe work, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was always interested in it as a philosophical question. But as I got older and older, I found myself becoming more and more actually Christian, um, (laughs) devoted not through uh, any sort of church services or organized religion, but through uh, esoteric and occult Christianity, which is now pretty much infused Almost everything I do, and you know my my worldview, and certainly this podcast. Um, but it's so weird that it is probably unrecognizable. You know, I'm definitely going to hell according to other Christians. You know, so it's unrecognizable in some senses. Um, but some it, things, right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, they are correct about that. Um, <laughs> but I. Uh, so anyway, that that. Is at the foundation of my work and the podcasts and my writing and everything I do right now.
2: Um, that's very beautiful. Uh, very fascinating stories from both of you. I grew up. Um, I just did a bunch of Jesus minds after seeing Gremlins one night, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) just a demon. A demon came out of me, and ever since (laughs) then I've been kind of good to go. Um, no, I grew up very religiously. I grew up uh, in Central Florida during the. What was called the Holy Laughter Revival. So if you get a chance to get on YouTube and find some fun videos, uh, it's very fascinating. But it was a mega church, seated 10,000 people. They suffered a church split because the pastor's wife allegedly was doing seances, which is a no-no, uh, as we all know, no. And uh, yeah, I went from being devoutly sort of Pentecostal Christian, which actually we just watched... Um I saw a documentary called Alabama Snake which you guys should check out. I mentioned it to you Pete, but it's about a snake handling creature who like tries to kill his wife with a uh, with a rattlesnake. It's very very fun. But uh I grew up during that and the whole time I was just like something about this whole thing doesn't make sense. It seems a little uh strange to me. And then I went to an arts high school and did acting and then studied zoology in college and then moved to Los Angeles and then all of those different experiences uh, sort of chipped away at different areas of belief that I had from young Earth creationism um, all the way up to sort of the monotheistic uh, God with singular son, Jesus who offers salvation. But I think it's still rattling around in the back of my head all the time. Uh, And I kind of like that. It's very fun. And now I've gotten very into Jung and I'm studying all about that, the different God images and that kind of thing. And it's uh, it's been very enlightening and very enriching, but for now I'm just sort of, um, I mean, Pete and I have talked about this before. It's like, I just enjoy, I don't know, who knows what I'll believe in a year from now or something like that. I just like switching it up and see. Right now it's mostly aliens. So we'll see how it goes.
0: (laughs) Okay, so a few things. One, I will definitely get into Jung versus Freud versus whatever the fuck it is, I believe, because I'm sure that that. Tension... I, I was
1: thinking you were you were Deleuze, Elliot's Jung, and I'm Hegel. That's what I was thinking.
0: <laughs> no, I'm Steiner, which is even Oh yes, of, of course, course that's right. Um, Sorry, but yes. but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean I yeah it's in that that, that is gonna be pretty interesting. I also love the Freudian repetition of talking about a guy who's trying to kill his wife with a rattlesnake and then later you said the Christianity's still rattling around in my head oh um, <laughs> very fun oh, now we're going to cycle Elliot, honestly don't call me a star <laughs> <flying>. I do <laughs> oh. I well, love that but but maybe the, I think the place I wanted to start and maybe this is um yeah I think this is the place I want to start which is your friend Peter having the um exorcism on the street hmm. um now I would say in that moment there's a little bit of a yeah, there's an interesting interpretive uh, piece for us here, because, you know, uh, definitely Jung and collective unconscious and archetypes would have a certain take on uh, what possession means. And certainly I would as someone who has these occult beliefs, but also, so would you as someone who's really into psychoanalysis, you know, Lacanian particularly, and well, we can get back to Hegel, but the... But I'm wondering, you know, when you witnessed that at the time and your friend also, there must have been a sense, I guess, that that was true, that there was actual like spirit possession and that the spirit was banished by the presence of the people outside the theater um, who helped them. And so, What happened for you in that moment and what happened for your friend and had your friend talked before about, I feel like I'm possessed by something, or was it just, that was all spontaneous, the possession event and the, Mm -hmm. and what happened there? Yeah. I mean, it was very spontaneous. There's a few interesting
1: things about it is I had no language to understand what was going on because I had never even really considered religion. I didn't believe in God, but not in the sense of like actively not believing in God. I just never considered it. So it was very weird for me watching this convulsion. <clears throat> he was a guy who was called PK. Um, and he, um, he was somebody who I, the, here is the funny thing, is I didn't know him. I knew his brother. Um, and I phoned up to hang out with his brother. And he said, listen, we're going to the cinema. Uh, do you want to come with us? And I went to the cinema with him. And then we became best friends through this experience. Well, one little caveat to this is very sadly, a few years later, he he was killed and uh, he was killed rock climbing. Like he was on the side of a a mountain and I slightly worry. um, It's hard to piece this together, but I think his belief, uh, I think he may have had so much certainty that God was protecting him and so much certainty, perhaps of hearing God that um, him and another guy were uh, ultimately got themselves in a difficult situation and he fell to his death. So it's, it, he has an interesting story, a story about belief and about certainty and then about how belief informs us in positive and negative ways. But, um, yeah, I had no way of understanding what was going on, but I did see it profoundly affect him. He, he became a Christian in Vercoms that night. And um, I saw a real kind of like, I, did, I, I didn't know him before this, so I couldn't say a change in his life, but he became a person of singular intensity um, and it very much impressed me.
0: Mm. And did you? I mean, but for you, did you think um, this is that th- this is an actual exorcism taking place? I know you said that the words weren't there for you, but it must have had an impression on you. And then continuing to talk to your friend about it, I mean, did it for immediately after? I'm not talking about now or how you would interpret it now, but in that yeah. sort of month or a few months after period. Yeah,
1: you know th- this is. I have a very natural phenomenological outlook on life. It's it's kind of weird. So, so I, like back then, I haven't studied. I had not you know become a philosopher or anything like that. But I had this weird thing of just of just accepting what was happening without putting much on it. And I don't know why that is about me. So even when I when I myself went into conversion. I don't think I adopted the beliefs so much as I find the beliefs interesting. I find what was going on fascinating. Um, so something profound was happening. And I think that's always stuck with me. I knew that something was needing to speak within him because he was speaking. Whenever he asked, what is your name? Then in a demonic voice, he would say, you know, rejection. <laughs> it was very, very kind of visceral. And I knew that there was some part of him that was not able to speak. And now I was finding a way to speak through this liturgical experience, this ritualistic experience. And um, that's always stuck with me right through my, my work. It actually probably is one of the reasons why I do what I do, is to understand what that dimension of us is that speaks and that, um, you know, that w- what our beliefs say about us and what they say about our world. Mm-hmm. Go back
2: to Gremlins too. <laughs> <laughs> all the answers in gremlins too.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. So I just had a, a few episodes back, this guy, John Tenney on the show and John's a paranormal investigator. He lives in Detroit oh, and cool. because he's been sort of investigating ghosts, you know, and and strange happenings his whole life. He was also friends with Father Malachi Martin, who was doing exorcisms for the Catholic church. And he got invited to an exorcism in Detroit, which is very rare that like an outsider would get invited into a Catholic exorcism. And unlike the one that you're talking about, the Catholic church has all these things in place to determine whether or not an exorcism is needed. So it's not like, you know, I mean, you could go, it's like whatever Baptist or evangelical or whatever, you would just, I need an exorcism and you'd go and you get, it's like getting a colonic or something. But like the, (laughs) but like the, the thing with the Catholic church is they do all this like research on the person. They do a psychological profile. They sometimes have a psychologist come in. And so John was waiting for months because the, the priest said, listen, we'll, we'll tell you, um, you know, we'll, we'll give you a call and it might be in the next few months. It probably won't happen, but if you get the call from us, you have to come if you want to do it. And you might be there for three, four, five days straight without really being able to leave except to get food. So just so you know, and John was like, all right. And then he went, you know, they called on him and he went and they said, and he said, like, it was this really grueling, crazy thing where, the person had just contorted into all these sorts of forms and voices and all that and in a way that they had already been screened for all the things that you would not that you might necessarily apply to this is the unconscious coming out
1: I, I mean I, I don't think I mean de- definitely like my, when I approach <clears throat> anything in my work at beliefs or something like exorcism, for me, you have to be a, you have to be a literalist. You, have to, you don't come in with your own preconceived ideas of whether it's possible or impossible. You let it speak. So that's what I meant by the phenomenological attitude is mm-hmm. I think yeah, if, if someone comes in, you know, like, so even when an analyst listens to a dream, they don't like, ask whether the things in the dream literally were seen that day or not. They ask, what do they mean? They kind of take them like a, a, a fundamentalist, a literalist. and The text speaks the truth. So yeah, when it comes to sort of phenomenon of belief, I'm interested in taking it fully, taking it, including taking the person's interpretation of the event seriously. So I'm very similar to you know you're studying anthropology and an anthropological kind of sense of taking seriously not just the the manifest content but also the person's interpretation um, and letting all of that speak.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I uh, I grew up around a fair amount of I saw. A a fair amount of the demon, the demons and the possessions and all that, and people would come in and they'd be freaking out, and uh, the the pastor would walk around and ask if anybody feels something inside of them, a stomach ache or something like that that might signal a demonic uh, entity. But then, what changed my or I think uh, affected the trajectory of my life more than I realized for you know twenty five years was when I was in like second grade. They walked us from because I went to a school that was attached to. The mega megachurch uh, and so we they walked us across the yard and they lined us up all around a fountain and then this man came in his name's Rodney Howard Brown and he's still out in Tampa he just got arrested actually recently for not using masks for that uh, COVID uh, and, and, and went to jail which was fun to see but uh, he came out and he prayed over all of us little chitlins and I remember very vividly being quote baptized in the Holy Spirit and I fell down backwards and like time and space and all that seemed to not exist anymore mm-hmm and uh and all that said it i you know now i would look at that and go okay yeah there was uh, some hysteria going on and there was some hypnotism and some powers of suggestion but it's but now knowing that now doesn't doesn't change how much the experience itself affected me growing up it, it uh, impacted the decisions i was making it impacted my social life especially as a teenager i was growing up through through puberty going like well I mean, I know that God is real, so I have to listen to this, because if I don't, I'm going to go to hell, because I know that this is true, because when I went to that church that one time, I started laughing uncontrollably for a really, really long time, and therefore, if I don't believe the right thing, and so I think it added to a lot of my own uh, neurosis, but I don't know that necessarily somebody going, well, you were hypnotized when I was 10 years old would have undid that either, so I'm only saying that to, to support the idea of sort of the... the Taking it literally, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. It's so interesting because, the, like, I think of this moment where you're baptized and you're saying, like, you had an altered state of consciousness, essentially. Like it sounds like an orgasm. Really, it's like the, this this moment where time and space, like time and space, actually change. Because, like, mm-hmm. the, in like in the moment of orgasm, time changes. Like that's one of the most profound aspects of sex is that it starts to sort of pull apart time. And so you're having this like kind of transcendent experience. I'm excited to, to
2: experience say. that one day. That sounds yeah, really cool.
1: right, yeah. <laughs> I, for Elliot, time goes very very quickly. That's what I've heard. Uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, but infinity is allowed in those two seconds. In those,
2: in the, oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> but magic.
0: Um, but yeah, I, so I'm also, um, and also there's this that thing about the laughter that you're talking about because I have heard you talk about this before, where um, the pastor, is it, is that the correct term mm-hmm. for the person, you know, would come up to you guys when you were very young and like make you all laugh, but he would touch you and say the God is going to inhabit you and you're just going to laugh. And you're really worried that you weren't going to laugh, but then exactly, he came up and touched you and you just started like laughing uncontrollably. And so it's really interesting to me that that's a sort of permitted kind of possession. Like, oh, like God's actually mm-hmm. going to It's not an exorcism. It's actually the opposite of it. Like you mm-hmm. will be inhabited by the spirit. I was really good at that, by the way. I, yeah.
1: I, was, I did exorcisms and got people to fall down and laugh. I I had a, I, I was in my in my 20s, in my early 20s. <laughs> <Pizza laughs> no. He's
2: in <laughs> the weirdest job interview of all time right now i actually know i've done some exorcisms <laughs> there, so I, I
0: actually, exorcisms reverse at. exorcisms whatever you want yeah. but there's okay. you know inter- there's inter- this re- <laughs> there's this really great um so alejandro hodorowsky who is a film director and he's probably at this point best known for being someone that had almost directed dune um there's a whole movie about his version of dune that he uh, was yeah. going to direct that he had casted salvador dali and orson wells and mick jagger in it and it just looked really incredible but he has this whole system uh called psycho magic where now i'm just going to make up this example but this could very well be a hodorowskian example where he says look I would love to be able to do regular magic like shamans do, but I'm not part of that culture. I'm part of Western culture. So what I do when people come to me with a problem is I give them a ritual which speaks to their unconsciousness. And then the unconsciousness resolves itself through this. So this is, I mean, I know this is going to sound out there, but this is a real Hodorowskian thing. He'd be like, okay, so if some woman came to me and said she was having problems with her father, I would tell her to put five gold coins in her vagina, walk around and slap the first man she sees in the face, and then go home and let the coins fall out. And then all her problems with her father would be resolved, right? So (laughs) I love- (laughs) It's <laughs> who who among us has it, but I love the, but I, the reason I'm bringing that up is that in some ways the evangelical church or the, the, the tradition you're a part of that makes you laugh or that Peter, you're, it's like you had all somehow composed the language that spoke to the unconscious in like a shared or sort of structured way. And I find that really fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I
2: love it. Can I, can it's I all share? Fascinating.
0: Can I share
1: one of my most powerful, you know, spiritual experiences? It was actually, a couple, few years later, where I had this vision where God appeared and and told me, "I do not exist." So God, God appeared to say that that God did not exist, um, and that's kind of like that was actually a very profound experience, which I think you know was something speaking, something, but that definitely uh, put me on my path. God said,
2: "God said God didn't exist."
1: Yeah. Yeah, pronoun confusion. So, I
2: God showed up and was like, "You don't exist, Pete." <laughs> yeah. Very disappointed.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, but that—that's why Hegel always interested me because Hegel's kind of that's a very Hegelian type of insight where God is—it's not where God doesn't exist, like in kind of New Atheism or whatever, or God does exist in confessional Christianity. Mm-hmm. But that God is a type of non-existent presence, a type of contradiction at the heart of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe that—that that was my uh, uh, what, what kind of fun. like drew me into what I do
0: today. So yeah, cool. it's really it's that's so. I mean, it's so profound. I wonder how we suss out the um, then the difference in how we apply a kind of ontology to that. Because for me, that wouldn't. <laughs> how do I say this? So I had this guy, Ari Torson on the show, and he's, and you're going to love this, he's an occultist, veterinarian, acupuncturist, okay? And he lives uh, in- I, I knew
1: many. I knew yeah. many of them. Okay. Yeah. It's
0: it's <laughs> an a, oversaturated market. Yeah. To be honest, it is. <laughs> totally is. So, but one of the things that we talked about a lot on that episode, which is, I subtitled it, Demonology and Nothingness, mm-hmm. is that- he, he, his idea of how the acupuncture works, he doesn't even use needles anymore. He says, like, I can go into the pet or the person, and I find this void in them, like a place where there's absolutely nothing. And I send a kind of signal into that void. And he says that that nothingness is Christ, like actually the healing, like the proximity of attentiveness to a healing nothingness is Christ. Yes. And it, It's was, yeah. really, really profound. And, and, but see the difference there is that he actually is asserting the truth of, of Christ being real quote unquote. Whereas mm-hmm. I think you're saying something different, which is uh, it's not exactly real. Right. And then, and then <laughs> it, it's something else, like something else is happening there where you can't assert the truth claim that Christ is real by saying that there's this nothingness there. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, although I would say that I am. So I would say that, you know, the difference between Kant and Hegel is you can't maybe has this notion of God as, you know, unspeakable and noumenal or whatever. Hegel's notion is you can positivize the negative. So actually, mm-hmm. I, I don't mind actually the way he's described it. He reminds me actually of Thomas Altheiser, who who basically like the, the, the devil used to be associated with nothingness. I mean, with mm-hmm. quietness, the idea is that evil is a lack. It's a privation. You know, if God creates everything, then what is evil? Well, evil must be something that that is not the creation, but is a a gap within the creation, like a hole in your sock or your shoe is what lets the water in. But actually Altizer does it, you know, talks about how well, no, the nothingness, um, God can be described as both being and nothingness. Mm -hmm. And that actually evil is the inability to embrace the nothingness. So evil becomes not a lack, but an ability, an inability to grasp the lack. So I mean, yeah, I definitely would have. You know, I'm not, I'm not. I think there's there's interesting differences, probably obviously between the occultic Christian notion and my own. And I would say this. I'd respond. Like, I'll ask you a question. See what you think. Is it fair to say that that the difference between us uh, would probably lie n- in the fact that uh, the occultic kind of approach it ultimately thinks that the lack is not foundational, it's not ontological that that there is a there is a fullness um, and a, 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 you can lack the lack because I think that might be the difference between the Hegelian approach and the approach that you take.
0: Yeah, so I want to answer that question, but um, I want to make s- some space for Elliot to jump in if he has anything to say here, because my answer will be long and drive us into deeper conversation. <laughs> so
2: no, I'm I, just I'm glad for a lot of dogs that uh, Pete isn't a veterinarian because I don't think <laughs> dogs, I don't think they'd feel better if they went to his uh, his clinic. But um, no, it reminded me that I was just going to say that the story that you said um, about the. Well, occultist veteran, veterinary, veterinary acupuncturist.
0: acupuncturist. Yeah,
2: so great. Uh, <laughs> I, it, reminds me of, um, it reminds me of the story of Mesmer, which I love very much. Of he would use magnets, and then after he was healing the magnets, he, he just was like, "I don't need the magnets anymore. My hands mm-hmm. are magnetized, and I've magnetized a tree now, and I've magnetized this." But it seemed to work, and it seemed to to garner a lot of attention. He would go behind a curtain and point at somebody, and they couldn't even see him, and they would be uh, they would be healed. I think that stuff is very, very, um, cool. I just think it's very interesting, but I don't have anything beyond that to say, but thank you for, for letting me interject.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that that is, yes, that is exactly what Ari would say was that at a, a certain point, he realized that the needles were no longer necessary that actually yeah. to do the true thing. And part because of the that dog was dead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly.
1: necessary. What was necessary was a hole in the ground. <laughs> yeah. Was,
0: I'm I'm not necessary. a miracle worker. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, so what he, okay. What I would say is, you know, for that, that difference that you're talking about, there are a few differences that I think are pretty um, fundamental. And one is that your relationship to the property of the lack would be different because you don't accept that death is an end point. So there's a problem there already with how we would conceive of the lack because there's a perpetuation of life into reincarnation um, and, and also a life between lives. So when you die, you actually have a life between this life and the next. So you could see how that might trouble the concept of the lack a little bit, especially in the ways that is popularly talked about by some people who do psychoanalysis oh, oh, no. as, as relating oh. to death. Was only that?
1: if the only only if um only if the lack is connected with an up uh, an upcoming death. But if you if you if you have an idea that death always is already within life, then right. I think
0: you know. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. No, no, that that's true. I'm not actually talking about your point, but just some psychoanalytic points, and cer- certainly Ernest Becker. I think you know, which has informed cy- psychoanalysts. Where a lot of what we do is the avoidance, fear of, you know, co- concept of an upcoming death. But actually, Rudolf Steiner says this really amazing thing that we all carry around our own deaths within mm-hmm. us, which you could, Adam Phillips could say something like that. I and mean, many psychoanalysts oh, yeah, yeah. could yeah, easily say something. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, but then the other thing being that, yes, I think that there is an idea that the lack is actually contained in an even bigger sort of structure. So in other words what psychoanalysis wants to do which is come to terms with and embrace the lack there is an idea that that's actually already a completed task that somehow that the that the universe or whatever you want to call it itself has already completed or embraced the lack for us and that actually is one of the principles of christianity that the lack has already been overcome by the death and resurrection of christ.
1: Yes, so that would be yeah, the occultic reading. Yeah, not the Hegelian yeah, reading.
0: Right, 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 so <laughs> right. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And so I, I mean, I. So for me, when I, whenever I, you know, obviously, psychoanalysis has played a huge part in my life. So for people that don't know, and for for is as well, like you know, I did four years of Lacanian uh, a a psychoanalysis. Right. So, and this is this interesting difference between Pete and I too, I think is that he came, although you've done some analysis, like you've mostly come to it through the philosophical perspective and I came to it through, you know, this, uh, process. And I think that there are benefits and, you know, and, and, and different challenges from each side of, of that. Um, but I think that so psychoanalysis for me serves that purpose of living and understanding the lack in that way, but also then just sort of adding, maybe you would say taken away, but I would say adding this part where it's like, actually, the lack is already embraced. So what does that mean? There is actually a fullness there that's filled in yeah. by something that. Is difficult to point to that might not be us that actually might be hidden in the lack from us in a way that we can't quite get to, or, or so on and so forth. So yes, that's why, that's why
1: I I think well. I'm
0: more of I'm more of an occultic
1: uh, veterinarian <laughs> <laughs> because I take it
0: more seriously. That lack that he finds within <laughs> the animal
1: as foundational.
0: Yeah. Well, so I want to just divert something real quickly before we get too far away from it, because I wanted to pick up on another thing in Elliot's story, which maybe relates to this, but I'm wondering why the zoology major didn't disabuse you of the religious, um, principles because you were, a, you were encountering, you know, it was zoology, especially is the main site aside from Freud probably, but the main site of, uh, you know, dethroning religion, you know, uh, more than any other science probably. So, so it's interesting that first of all, to me that you went into that encounter in the first place, but also that you left without having it sort of uh, dissolve the belief structures that you had at the time.
2: That's a great observation, Connor. Yeah. I've thought about that recently too. I think it's very interesting that something in me was, was, um, went headfirst into, uh, studying, especially growing up doing art and acting and that kind of the humanities world. And then just leaving all of that and going into science, which I had no experience with throughout growing up in in high school. So, uh, I was kind of, I dove into the deep end a little bit and there was a heavy emphasis on evolution and ecology and all that. And it, it definitely, um, it was a struggle and it, I was just very stubborn. I was also, I got married when I was 20 years old. I was very, very determined to be the good kid who did things the right way. And so zoology for me was a gateway to get to veterinary school, which was a gateway to have a nice suburban life because I thought that's what I was going to do. It did not turn out like that, it turns out. But um, yeah, I mean, and there's, there's similarities now too with the Jung thing as well. It's like, I enjoyed do, diving into things Um, to, to check kind of this, just check it out. Like, I don't know, like if you're walking into a room and you're kicking the tires a little bit, um, and trying to like explore that stuff, but who knows, who knows what it is that causes it. But, um, it was definitely, I I didn't realize, I don't think the significance of what I was doing at the time. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: He said, as someone who got married at 20.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, that I mean, it is interesting because when you talk about your marriage at twenty, you talk about how it was meant to sort of please her and please your parents and please God, but not. but you didn't really reflect on whether or not it pleased you, except that it pleased you to please them, right? Like exactly. that was at, yeah, yeah. so is was zoology like a rebellion against that, maybe somehow?
2: I, it was I, a rebellion. I mean, Yeah, I'd wanted to go to, um, I'd wanted to originally study theater, study acting and get into entertainment. But then my parents who were funding the college were like, well, maybe choose something where you can actually try to make a living. And I was like, okay, that's fair. What's, what can I do? And I loved animals. And I'd been, so I started working at veterinary clinics and did that for, um like 10 years. It was not an acupuncture veterinary clinic. Uh, but it wasn't a cultish one. And we saw yeah. some pretty, no, it was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots of yeah, exorcisms. I did that for <laughs> lots of exorcisms. Um, yeah, uh Hillary Swank's dog one time. She had a little bad corgi. <laughs> that was a lot to <laughs> <have>. <laughs> Not to throw under the bus, but that was a bad, I love Corgis and that was a bad, bad corgi. Um but anyway.
0: You exercised a pig and it and all the demons jumped into a bunch of people who ran off a cliff yeah and
2: started all laughing. it was very
0: familiar um that's a so, deep cult joke cry uh, the yeah. New your bible <laughs> to get that one that's- <laughs>
2: yeah
0: um well so one of the reasons why i'm bringing that up is i'm thinking about the ways in which people compartmentalize um it like pre- rather rigidly their belief structures in ways that are not sort of permeable so even though you had gone This is a very interesting question for all of us, right? So it's like, even though you had gone to zoology school where you're learning about evolution that flies in the face of a lot of the religious principles or dogma or whatever that you've been taught, you still can somehow carry that with you like a little stone through the process. Or like with Peter, there's this thing where it's like, I saw God and and you somehow held through that your non-belief or whatever. And 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 for me, well, it's probably harder for me to identify my, my own version of that, or maybe I'm just awesome and I don't ever do that. But no, I'm sure I've done it many yeah. times where I've compartmentalized something that actually would kind of mess up the structure, but I find a way to fit fit it into my read of things. And certainly this is a problem that we're all <laughs> that we're really facing right now in, in in our time is the ways in which you know, we create a kind of membrane, you know, where uh, no other kind of read or interpretation of the world can get in. And so there's an extent to which I think that's healthy. Like I'm not, for for, for instance, I think Peter's version of it is actually really healthy and was really enriching for him in a way, but, but, but there's, there's a way in which it becomes very unhealthy too. And I'm wondering how we sort of distinguish between those two, like where the compartmentalization makes sense and where it actually becomes rather damaging or perpetuates um, an insularity that doesn't allow us to do more with our lives.
1: I mean, if I can jump in on that. um, So if, right. You know, and this might draw the differences between Freud and Jung a little bit as well. But if you um, yeah, if you say that, <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm leaving. <laughs> this might be pro Jung, but that would be a first. No. <laughs> <You> <laughs> then, I'm, then
2: I'm then <laughs> I'm leaving. You'd yeah. like, be like the problem with Jung is, and then he stopped talking. I'm like, that sounds really cool. I, I like that. Okay. We'll, go, even,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: so if if one says um, like if you go with the idea that Obviously, that that we have multiple beliefs, right? Multiple desires going on, and the idea that certain beliefs, so there's an other within us. So if I'm I'm talking about wanting to leave my job, well, what I'm really saying is I want to leave my partner, right? But I, but that's that's another belief that I'm not even aware of. It's a it's something that's going on in me. Um, now, for me. What, what's important is that we try to sensitize ourselves to this other belief, the other beliefs that are going on. So say I, I say, I don't believe in ghosts, but whenever the lights are out, I think there are ghosts under the bed. Or I think, always think there's intruders in the house whenever I hear something, a creak, right? You're like, well, there's, there's some beliefs that are going on because the, the intruder isn't in the house. The intruder is inside you. Right, so unless, of course, there really is an intruder, and uh, but and they really are inside
0: you, yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: yes.
2: Tell that to my shadow person. (laughs) Yeah, Uh,
1: but like, if uh, if someone is constantly thinking there's someone in the house, you know, you go like, oh right, there's some there's there's something inside you, a a belief, something that's going on, it's disavowed. Um, my thing is the healthier a person is, is the more that they can basically come to see their beliefs and desires that not like disavow the more you disavow them the more, the more they appear in the real the more they appear outside you and mm-hmm. for me the slight difference between the more occultic dimension and the Freudian dimension see if you agree with this or not is the occultic dimension the the unconscious that these beliefs are lie lie within us you through meditation and reflection you can access these whereas in the Freudian they're on the surface they are within your language a, uh, you don't need to go deeper into speech. The unconscious is always on the surface um, in the signifiers that you use. Mm-hmm. But um, does that, if I clarify what I mean, when you're talking about kind of belief, it's, I'm almost saying that we don't know what we believe. The first right. step is to, um, is to become more sensitive to the beliefs that we have that we don't even know that we have. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I actually think that what you're saying is more Jungian like the the idea that it's inside us and we can access it through a kind of process. So the occult version, well, yeah, that working. is union, but I'm not saying that. Right, right, but you said that's the more occultic version, and I'm just sort of separate, distinguishing between the oh. two because what I would I say, them, I put them together, but yeah, so they're <laughs> actually the, so the occult is to, also totally opposed opposed to to Jung in its in its way. There are versions of occultism that really dovetail well with Jung, but not mine. Um, mine is just pure hatred. Um but no, I, I, but I, but I um, archetypal hatred, one might say. But no, I, um, you know, for the the occult version is like your thoughts are actually not your own. So <clears throat> the human being is rather, and, and there is a lot of commonality with Lacan. In, in some ways I th- view Lacan as a combination of Freud and Jung, which I think would piss off a lot of Le- Lacanians, but like the, the human being is an address where spirits congregate and their activity is our thoughts. So, um, we might, you might name that social forces. Like to me, the big other is a way of designating a spiritual, actual spiritual entity, but the, 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 and and the disbelief or the the, well, anyway, I don't want to get too deep into it, but, but, but the voices that you hear in your head that you call your thoughts are actually, um, they're sort of spirit locations for the active flow of thinking to move towards and through. and you don't, most of your thoughts aren't your own. Mm. Some of them are, but it's very rare, it's very, very rare to have your own thought. And it's very rare to even have your own feeling. And it's also rare to have your own purposeful sense of action. So in that sense, it would actually agree with with psychoanalysis, Freudian psychoanalysis in a sense, where we don't know why we do the things we do. We don't know. But but you would name those spiritually in a certain way. And sometimes you wouldn't ever be able to identify which spirits or whatever,
2: but how does this differ from archetypal ideas of of different patterns? You you
0: tell me because I, I I think that there is a difference, but I want to hear what your version of this is. So I,
2: I mean, I'm brand new to it, but it seems like it, that choosing slightly different words for like parallel definitions. Like it, it, my understanding is, uh, at the base level of archetypes is that they're just instinctual patterns of behavior that predate language. And they allowed us to reach a certain level of civilization and society that allows us to not kill each other. Um, and so what, as a result, then what we do now in, in life, most of what you do and is basically motivated at its core by these patterns of behavior. And I, I don't know that that's so far off from an, a literal spirit. That's, that's, you know, affecting your brain, but I don't, I truly don't know.
1: Well, what if I put it like this, by the way, I think Connor, you're describing very well. What in Lacanian would uh, Lacanian would be called a psychotic structure. The, mm-hmm. the person who is very aware of themselves as a, yeah, as a thing, but what, what if I wonder if the difference between the three positions is this. So the, the Freudian position is the unconscious is on the surface in the chain of signifiers, um, whenever I say the world is falling apart, I might also be saying, I feel like I'm falling apart, but I see it externally in the world because I haven't seen it within myself. Then the union notion would be that the, the archetypes lie kind of in a, in a depth, right? Depth psychology. So you can access, uh, discover or activate these archetypes. In the same way that someone would activate their um kind of epigenetics through putting themselves through a very extreme situation and then connor you're saying that this depth is an actual connection with a type of spiritual world
0: yeah i mean i think that that's i think that that's pretty well fleshed out for sure um and that's why you're both wrong. And I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you, know, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, the only thing I would, the only thing I would say is that, what, what would I, what would I add to that? Because you're seeing that the Freudian stuff is this, it's almost all on the, it's all on the surface in it's weird way that there's kind of nothing, are you saying there's nothing underneath it?
1: Yeah. For the Freudian, you can't meditate your way to the unconscious because the unconscious uh. isn't a higher consciousness right. or an enlightened consciousness, but rather a, a something that hitches a ride within your speech, within your signifying mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: And so for the union, it's fun to me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Jungian idea is then that, um, and I know, Elliot, you're saying that you're new, but you're still, I'm sure, better at that version than either Pete or I. So just go for it.
2: I mean, um, I'm better at that than the, what than what you guys know about, which is <laughs> even less. Um, but I, I mean, my understanding from the Freudian perspective is that it's basically, it you know, your psyche is is contained solely inside your head. There is absolutely no permeability from you know nature, from spirits, or anything like that. It all kind of happens um in a closed system in the mind and then you my understanding would expand the psyche to include um i mean i think later he went and expanded it to all of of nature which my understanding would then that would sort of fit very well with what you're talking about connor but i don't know that it would be the same sort of like like actual metaphysical spiritual thing or if it would just be something else that i don't know yet yeah,
0: I mean I think that that's I think that that is like the it sounds like a slight difference but it's actually in, in to my mind a rather large difference which is that you know um the, the spiritual beings, which might be contained in archetypal or collective ideas for Jung, are actually, they have their own sort of beingness, and it's not the same as the human being, um, and that, that still fits, but that they're evolving too, and that we affect the way that they grow and live by our interactions with them, just as, you know, my interactions with Peter or, or you, might sort of change that or my interaction with a cupcake if I just take a giant bite out of it, or or if I took a giant bite out of you guys, but like if I took a bite out of it, it, Mm. it, it would, it would start to affect that. But the way that you deal with those archetypes is through, it's not meditation is the sort of wrong. It is meditation. You do meditation, but it's more of spiritual effort that actually, and this is the really difficult thing to explain where you get into the flow of thinking itself. So Rudolf Steiner calls this living thinking, where thought, and I think maybe you guys would agree with this, but thought is actually the cast off dead process or the husk of the, or the, the, the object produced by the process, the living process of thinking. And so Steiner's thing is like, there's so much focus on free will, um, but actually, what we need to do is get into free th- free thinking, which is a completely different process. And then that through that, that starts to um, bring clarity to feeling and purposefulness and action. But it, again, it's very rare, which is why he yeah. says, you know, man is not free, he is on the way to becoming free. Which is like so, every once in a while we have these instances where we kind of rise above the forces of karma, which would include the unconscious, but all the sort of conditions that we're born into are karmic forces. And every once in a while it's like a seal coming up through the hole in the ice. You breathe, but then you get right back down into the to, to the water. But through the yeah. continual process of immersion and the, the flow of thinking, then that becomes transformative o- over time. Pete,
2: were you going to so, say something?
0: Oh yeah, well.
1: So I was going to say, although because you're bringing in the idea of thought, but the, my, my for me the category of 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 these meditations and spiritual practices is brings us to what Hegel calls this the experience of sense certainty, which is a kind of a stage before the symbolic, before language, kind of brings us to pure being, this pure hearness, pure knowness, pure thought without content, pure form, right, and. I think that can be very, very helpful. I think that can be really enjoyable That's why a lot of people do drugs. Uh, Elliot and I were talking about this the other day, but um, a guy called Rick Lucy, a psychoanalyst in Ireland, you know talks about addiction as in without addiction addiction you know to move before the symbolic um, that can be useful, but, but for the Freudian, it doesn't give you access to the speech that is within the symbolic and my concern is that a lot of this um well, I think a lot of Jungian and occultic stuff is very much in the imaginary register. And I would say psychoanalysis operates primarily in the symbolic register. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: uh, but anyway, I don't know if that makes that you know, that's my kind of critique a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna counter and then and then maybe we should I, I want to talk about um, belief and everything that's happening in the world right now. Um, but
2: I'm holding but, up my one book. Hang on, guys. Look, uh, this is my one book.
0: <laughs> the symbolic quest. Well, you know that's a that's a very interesting
1: line. The symbolic quest. That's a that's a psychotic who is actually looking to be within the symbolic. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, How dare you? Themselves already. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: we don't we don't uh, stigmatize the psychotic here, uh, Elliot. Oh, absolutely.
1: So. The perverse neurotic and ah. psychotic structures are all yeah. equally fucked up. Um and they're all equally great. We
0: actually have all three structures here, I think. So yeah, I think I, Elliot's neurotic. I, I never say what structure why I am. do you think that?
1: why you're, do you think
0: that you're you're neurotic pizza pervert and i'm a i'm a yeah. psychotic that's pretty uh, true to be honest you know the perverse structure
1: is the one who thinks that um there's rules to live by but you're an exception to them
0: and um i have yeah. always lived in that way so, yeah. <laughs> totally i'm so i want to i want to bring up if if you don't mind i want to just say one thing about uh, about peter that really made me understand his perversion so deeply so I like what's it's actually apropos for the time of year don't worry peter I won't say anything too terrible. Yes, for years. So,
2: (laughs) (laughs) where do you begin?
0: But well, first of all, Elliot, it's totally obvious that you're a neurotic. So, first of all, for people listening and don't understand this, there are basically three diagnoses in like uh, uh, in current psychoanalysis, mostly Lacanian psychoanalysis, and you can really. Read about these in a great way in a book by Bruce Fink called "A Clinical Introduction to Lacanian Analysis." I think that's what it's called. I'll put it in the yes, show notes. It's, very good. it's an awesome book. Neurotic, um, neurotic pervert, uh, you're a neurotic, a pervert, or a psychotic, and all those diagnoses are not necessarily fixed th- ways in which you say you have perversion, you have neurosis. Of course, that's maybe part of the thinking, but the idea is gives what when the analyst begins to apply that to you as the analyst and um it gives them a way to begin to speak with you and work with you which is different than saying something to someone like you have depression or you have it's a different kind of diagnostic technique because it really informs a kind of conversation and communication
1: structure well said yeah
0: so um so, what we're saying now is that Elliot is a neurotic, which I think anybody can see. They, like, just listen to Valley Folk or watch his special. Watch just be listen to music.
2: More- couldn't be more obvious. Yeah. It really
0: could not be more obvious. You're worried about unless what your you think, sh- think.
2: you. Unless you think it could be more obvious, Connor. And if you think it could be more obvious, <laughs> it's definitely more
1: obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I'm never going
0: to admit my structure. So
1: I'll let you say what you think. Yeah, yeah. So, so Peter
0: Peter's a pervert, and the story I was going to tell that I think is really revealing and really click things into place with me in understanding this structure was when I lived with Peter, there was a day in which I was talking about Christmas. Now, Peter's a theologian or was basically a theologian for a long time, you know, philosophical theologian. And I said, Christmas, and and you asked Peter, you said, oh, when is that? And I said, it's December 25th. <laughs> yeah, so, that's right. So to me, this is a perfect example of the pervert, which is to display mm-hmm. that they have removed themselves from the uh, rules that everybody else is subject to. Like I don't even know when Christmas is, and I'm a theologian, right? Yes. So to me, that well, was I'll actually rather,
1: rather for the perverse structure. It's not. It's not a. Um, it's not a show. It's a. It's a literal. Well,
0: reality. right, right. I don't think you actually were thinking. I'm going to show him. Like I don't think oh, it yeah. was. Yeah, I, like I literally didn't know. Like I didn't now, know. No, right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Or you did like, I this. It. yeah, and so the psychotic, so for me is like, basically in the terms I understand is that there's we can really simplify it. there's no name of the father. So the way to explain that is that there's no idea that there, or there's, there's a disavowal of external authority. So you kind of make up the world as you go along, which can have all kinds of great benefits, but also have lots of problems for it. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about the occult is I think what the occult does is it turns, it actually turns people psychotic, but in in a way that is, pre- that that works and that is preferable. <laughs> it removes people from the realm of the other structures and puts them into a psychotic structure, which lends them a kind of uh, a sort of autonomy um, in the way things work. Cause I, yeah. I don't necessarily, and, and psychoanalysts would say that that's probably impossible that you don't just move from one. Oh no, 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 you can,
1: you can, you're absolutely right. That, that a neurotic can, can benefit from a psychotic st- structure a hundred percent. And also I do think to add to that as well, that the, that the occult can be a cure first for the psychotic structure. You know? Yeah. Not right. always, but can be
0: right. Yeah. No, I think, I think, I think that's well, I think that's well said. So, but wait, I what was I what was I saying so I was saying there's the collection of all of us with so all three uh stru- structures here but where was that going I was going to talk about
2: just the, the band the boy band that we're starting
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I thought
1: we call ourselves the perverts the psychotics yeah. the erotic- I don't know what <laughs> yeah
0: pnp yeah um <laughs> <laughs> which is mm-hmm. funny. So PNP, which would be you know pervert, uh, neurotic, psychotic, yeah. but PNP also in like gay link hookup lingo means party and play, which means you're going to do math and have sex. So we could have that oh, great wow. double entendre. Well, uh, Those work. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you're saying, which I, w- I wonder
1: if we were going to go this direction, is like you know you know you can work out anyway. That that I think that the occult is potentially. People either who are neurotic are drawn to it because they're 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 mesmerized by the certainty of the psychotic. So they they're mesmerized by the the psychotic ability to not play by the rules, not feel the rules, um, and to have certainty. But also that that the occult. Because one of the things about the psychotic structure in psychoanalysis is some trauma has not been subjectivized, hasn't been able to be metabolized into language. And so it it exists in the real, it exists in the external world um and so is the is the occult the the structure of, yeah, I think what's interesting is you're actually, I thought you would disagree with this, but I'd say that the occult in some way offers a type of uh psychotic structure
2: for mm-hmm. people
0: yeah i think i I actually think that's true or I would say you know uh psychosis offers you know, an occultic structure for people that don't believe in the occult, right. Or yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever it might be. But um, so, okay. So <laughs> let's sort of move this. Cause we, we could, I, I mean, I love this conversation. I actually want to go deeper into it with you guys at, at, at some point, but we could stick in this conversation about the differences between our structures and uh, versions of how we approach the world for, for a while. But I'm really interested. You guys are constantly talking about on your podcast, Fundamentalist, about, you know, what's happening in the world. You, you're First of all, your podcast just keeps getting better and better. So I want to point that out. Most podcasts get worse and worse, but yours has been getting better and better and better because what's happening is – you know, Elliot comes on and is like, you you know, you guys pick a topic, Elliot comes on. He's like, this is just what I'm dealing with kind of in my life, you know? And then, and then you offer Peter this kind of, you know, philosophical structure around it, but actually over time, like the ways that you've met each other across that divide has become more and more interesting. I think to listen to, like, I find it really fascinating to go on. Thank you. And part of that, I think also is the world has thrown up events, which make it a really rich ground for the (laughs) the two different kinds of perspectives. And, and and so one of the things that, you know, you guys have been talking about a lot lately is the ways in which people are stuck in their ideologies, the incommensurability of understanding each other um, the certainty around theories about coronavirus and what's going on. And so I wanted to, um, talk about that, you know, I, 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 people have all their sort of belief systems around it. But, you know, you you started back in March, I listened to your episode from back in March, where you had this sort of anticipation of what was coming and what was happening. And you talked about the threat of what's happening and the opportunity of what's happening. So oh, maybe yeah. I want to start there. So maybe you guys could sort of recap what you were thinking back then. And everybody just listened to that episode, I'll put in the show notes. But then also, do you still agree with what your interpretation was?
1: I love the fact that you think we remember what we said. <laughs> and Elliot, do you want to go ahead? <laughs> I can't yeah. remember what I said yesterday.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the moment, Connor, you, you said that, you're like recap it. I looked at Pete like, yep, no. Nope. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, well, that actually then it'll be like dream interpretation. What do you think you said then? That'll be yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, what was, I mean, it was, it was the, the risk and yeah, the opportunities with the potential pandemic that we were not the potential, it was a very new pandemic. And then I believe, um, yeah, I mean the, the risks, I believe Pete said something about, you know, total collapse of basically civilization as we know it. And then the opportunity being, I don't remember, but my guess is Pete was probably like, but the good news is that that's probably a good thing or something. (laughs) I (laughs) (laughs) I think it was, it was, um, yeah. Do you remember what your, what, the, what the positive was going to be? Because I can't remember it now. Uh, uh,
1: Connor, you might have to spark us off because you listened to it more recently <laughs> than we set up.
0: Well, there was this one moment. And actually, this is a great thing for Elliot to talk about, I think, which is um, you were like, um, I have this show in D.C. in April. But that's that's a little ways away. I think it'll probably be okay. Or you said something like that. Oh yeah.
2: It's so funny. And
0: and so like, so that's the, so that anticipation was there. It was like the way you were imagining things panning out was like really kind of rooting for that show, but also like, Ooh, I don't know. And Pete, you had just canceled wake. So you had just canceled your festival that was happening and that you do every year in, in Belfast um. except this year. And so I think you were both talking about kind of the reality of the situation just in your own lives where you had canceled and you were kind of worried about how it was going to go. And Pete, you were like, yeah, but you know, the audience in DC, that's just a local audience. You should be fine. Right. Like yeah. you're still kind of like rooting yeah. for Elliot. So maybe we would start with just how things <sighs> turned out.
2: I remember being so Amazed and almost impressed at how wrong every single assumption (laughs) I made about this year has been. Like for a while. Like I remember we we did a bet, uh me, Pete, and a buddy named Curtis, where we were like deciding when we thought this was gonna go, when this was gonna be done. And the latest we said was like August or something. And even that I was like, that's insane. Like there's no I won by the way.
1: At least I was the furthest out.
2: Yeah, you did win, and and even then it was like half as you know. We're obviously not not finished with it, but then they did cancel the the my stand up show, and I was like, okay, good, because I really was feeling as it got closer, I felt really uncomfortable, obviously with doing it, and I was like, I hope they don't make me have to pull the trigger; it'll make me look bad as like a comedian. And so when they did, I was like, thank God. Then they rescheduled it for December. Um uh like a week ago. And I was like, here we go. I was like, we're gonna do it. And of course they just canceled um a couple of weeks ago. And th- this time there was no postponing. They were just like, Yeah, we're you're just not gonna do that. But, but stand in fairness,
1: that was because nobody wanted to
2: see you do your stand-up. <laughs> exactly. Well, I had no, they were like, We need people who do jokes. We need people who are fun. And you're not that. Um and uh but no, I mean stand-up in general just has been um Really decimated by the, the the whole situation and comedy clubs and and I mean everyone has you know you all know this, but that's the one I'm closest to, so I'm um most privy to it but yeah, it um I've just been I've been wrong about literally everything I think with this uh with this thing, and I think it's um I don't know what Lacan would say about optimism, but uh it, probably not a lot of good things, uh, but it's a, a lot of optimist uh, stuff going on where it's like I guess I just make up stuff that I think is gonna happen in a positive way and then. Think I'm going to speak it into existence, and maybe sometimes it works, and maybe sometimes it doesn't.
1: You manifesting? You're reading the secret again, are you? (laughs) This is
2: this computer is on a meditation pillow. (laughs)
1: Nice. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, just my experience from whenever from March until now about COVID. Yeah, that's an interesting. As
0: far as as far as yeah, threaten threaten opportunity, and and yeah, having just cancelled wake and. You know your 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 feelings around that. I mean, it's interesting because I think retroactively, or at least retroactively, I don't know if you felt this before, but I remember you saying like was well, kind of a relief to like cancel the festival, and that's actually the same thing that Elliot just said about his gig.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's true. That was I, I kind of felt that. Well, as it came closer and closer, just the you know, I suppose the the unknowing. I mean, this is an interesting idea that unknowing is is worse. Experience than knowing something bad, so that's why sometimes a person thinking I'm sick because God hates me is actually more less anxiety producing than the idea that I'm sick and I have no reason why. Um, there's a there was a um, I kind of wrote a short play once, but it involved a prisoner who was beside. Dostoevsky's prison cell, and Dostoevsky was led out, and as you know, he was it was a mock execution. So in reality, they pretended to kill him, but they didn't. And the person in the cell beside him saw this, so now he thought, oh my goodness, maybe I won't be shot either, right? So he's going like, I'm supposed to be shot, but maybe maybe they'll do a mock execution for me and he's really happy about it. But as the days turn into weeks and into months and it gets closer and closer and no one will tell him, the unknowing gets so bad that he eventually hangs himself. So um, yeah, so there's there's maybe a certain relief in the in knowing the apocalypse is happening. Then you see it the, the profound anxiety that people are feeling at the moment um, in terms of will I be able to pay my rent? Will I have a job? And I think a lot of the violence, like I live in downtown L.A., everywhere is boarded up. It's like Belfast in the in the eighties um, because I think a lot of this generalized anxiety uh, needed wants to find itself externally in the world. And uh, so that was my concern is that there will be a lot of violence erupting that we will. So even when Lady Diana died, it was just a person dying, terrible thing. But the fact that the whole of the country in the UK and and large parts of the world, that that became the external holding place for a generalized anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I think I was probably reflecting on my slight worry that the anxiety is basically the tool for real change. So that's the possibility of anxiety. Anxiety is always, you know, offers the possibility of change, but also when anxiety is objectified into the world, it can cause a lot, a lot of violence. And I was very worried at that time that we would see violence on the streets. And I still am mm-hmm. worried that we could degenerate into a type of low level civil war. I agree. Yeah, up we're not,
2: war, you know, um we're yeah we're not we don't seem to be in a good la specifically doesn't seem to be in a very good place with the potential for violence right now yeah from what i can tell because it's just heightened anxieties from everybody
1: yeah everyone like
2: straight like strangers everyone is talking like so conversational now which is really cool there's a sense of community around the fact that there's a singular thing everyone can bond over but in my experience it's just out and about uh, in the grocery store and stuff, it does seem like there is just a the air is a little thicker.
1: <clears throat> I've seen I've seen both neurotic anxiety and psychotic anxiety. So neurotic anxieties well, that's the common kind of anxiety. But then I've also known a few people who have been close to kind of delusional breaks where they literally see the world collapsing and they literally believe that either pedophiles are running Hollywood or neo Nazis are running the organs mm-hmm. of State or whatever. Like they literally, it's not even that they they wonder right it's not even that they kind of believe it in a kind of like whatever it's like they know it, they see it they feel it it's the anxiety is and there are real issues and like about whatever but it's like it's just seeing this anxiety take such extreme forms that people will take up guns you know they will kind of like you know so there's they are yeah. slight worries about that
0: yeah. It, it's interesting because, um, <clears throat> so at the end of 2019, I did my friend Duncan Trussell's podcast and I had said, oh, I
2: love Duncan Trussell. He yeah. Yeah.
0: Me up. Yeah. He's great. And so, um, he, he, you know, I, I said, and this is obviously before the, the global crisis showed up. I was like, look, I, I think what's coming this next year. And this is because I have psychic powers cause I'm an occultist, but I said, I think what's coming next year is that, like actually like the real problem is not going to be that um, things are worse than they ever were before, but there's actually going to be this occluding force that makes people think that they're worse than they ever were before. And so it's the only thing people are going to be able to talk about. And that will actually make things worse than they ever were yep. before. So I, I, like, think, yeah. I, I could see that structure sort of rising before this showed up and and part of it, and then it just started bearing itself out right away. I mean, really interesting that the year started off with fears about going to war with Iran, right? So like it surfaced and then it sort of went away and then it came back as, you know, the, this other thing. In some ways, so so the way you're talking about the anxiety, like really forming, it, it can have that effect, right? Because it's almost a kinetic energy that mm-hmm. has all this potentiality in it. But um, like, how should I say this? Like the anxiety was always there. Like it, it was our, it predated everything that was happening, but like, you know, you have this moment where you slam on the brakes because the whole world seems to grind to a halt in the way we know it. And everything from the back seat flies up into the front seat. So you can see it for a second, but yeah. it, to the extent that you start invisibilizing all those things again, that just, that just showed up for you, then you're in real trouble because the the, the feeling or, or that potential is still there, but you've not made a decision to do anything with it. And I'm not saying that all the unconscious surfaces and you can see it all clearly. And, and there's, there's nothing that's not, you know, unreachable at that point. But if you don't do something with what you've just seen, you're really in trouble. And I think that that's maybe where you're talking about the potential for violence. It's like, what actually was done, you know, with, with this moment of a lot of things sort of rising to the surface or, or just sort of sensing them or seeing them like, Wow, like the work structure sucks, the insurance structure sucks, the government structure sucks, all these things that incubated uh, disaster for a virus to show up in and then become a catastrophe. It didn't have to be a catastrophe, but actually all the structures were terrible. And so then, but then it starts getting driven, you know, it starts getting sort of, um, I mean, the media obviously loves this. Uh, for for various reasons but it's it, it starts getting sort of uh, driven away and replaced with are you pro mask or anti mask? And that will of course turn into, are you pro vaccine or anti vaccine? And you know, the,
1: the the I like that Freudian slip actually. Yeah. Right yeah. Now. Did you like, I got you do Freudian slips, but there was kind of a slight, size Freudian slip in there. <laughs> no, no,
0: I do do some Freudian slips. So there's Very still some, some, yeah, yeah. Only because I've decided to, but the, nah. the, the <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, <laughs> but the, but the idea that like, um, you know, that, that all that anxiety that could have been potential is now being redispersed into new fields yeah. or contact points of anxiety is what leads to the potentiality for 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 violence because it's once 100%. again just driven into us because and you don't know, yeah, you know what yeah
1: okay. agree, Oh, yeah i was I just going to say that you mean something that i noticed and, see, and i think it connects very much with what you're saying is um right so for K- soren Kierkegaard, Anxiety is the our freedom, right? Anxiety is, a, is it shows, it's the contradiction that subjectivity is. And so Kierkegaard wants us to embrace our anxiety. But in a society where we flee from anxiety through drugs, entertainment, um, kind of like just trying to find different ways to consumerism, whatever, we try to avoid the anxiety of lack of social mobility, alienation in the workplace, uh, lack of stability uh, with finances, et cetera, et cetera. Then what happens is the return of the repressed is it actually comes back with a vengeance. So I saw a lot of people in the entertainment industry who spent their lives avoiding anxiety and helping other people avoid anxiety, suddenly going to the opposite extreme and and and, and putting this anxiety in, in very aggressive forms um, in terms of how they saw the world and how they interacted so for me, there is a connection between an, an, a world that is attempting to get rid of anxiety through drugs um, consumerism, et cetera, et cetera, and then an explosion of a type of primitive anxiety that sees the enemy everywhere they look, just like uh, uh, someone th- uh, who's um, uh, phobic sees in the rat all of their fears, all of their anxieties in, in an object. So yeah, that, that was that was my worry is that, as you said, like mobilizing anxiety is the, is the purpose of psychoanalysis, really mobilizing anxiety for the good, for transformation. But if we don't do that, we try to avoid it. And then when we try to avoid it, it ends up eventually exploding in a violent way.
2: I kind of feel, I mean, in my, just in my experience, it's part of the going back to school and trying to give myself some sense of structure was largely a result of the the pandemic and then the overall just um, the racial tensions that popped up and and uh, and it, it it made me go okay uh, I I have like thirty to forty years left of doing something and I can either do something and kind of bolster what I'm doing in some way intellectually and also allow myself to dive into something or I can just sort of keep free flowing and being knocked around a little bit by the, the out, out, you know, outer circumstances. And so for me, it was a very, it's been a very difficultly positive experience. Like it's just been, it, it's been a lot of work to try to take risks and just focus on different things. But I'm seeing in my friends and I'm seeing in my, a lot of my peers, just like, everyone's not doing great. And it's like, it does feel a little bit like a pressure cooker still. And that's just in my, my circle and this like psychological effects of what this is doing. Uh, I don't like Pete said the phrase, I think one of the best phrases he's ever said, and that's saying something cause he said like four good things. Uh, <laughs> but there was, he said that the, what is the lightning has struck, but we haven't heard the thunder yet. Something yeah. like that. And I was like, that I think is the best way to look at this because, um, regardless of what happens or why it happens uh it does not feel like we're nearing the end in any way if anything i think it hasn't really begun but i'm seeing it in my my friends and friends of friends where i'm going oh this is really like like you, like people have a lot really lost their their center of gravity a little bit and it's tough to uh to witness and you could argue that they didn't have one in the first place that they were burying it with distraction that they were burying it with their work or whatever but it's it is uh yeah, it's it's tough to to see. It's it makes me sad. Yeah. But
1: that your example, just <clears throat> very quickly. Sorry, you're a very good example of someone who has done this right. Right. So
0: what right, you wanted to do? I was going to say do, the same
1: thing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Is that <laughs> yeah? Oh, oh, did, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Because yeah, what you did is there was an anxiety that erupted in society, and instead of getting through them by the waves of that, you then it it actually led you into education to understand to reflect. Um, just to, there's a, an analyst I like, I don't talk about very much, but I, Wilfred Beon. he's a really interesting analyst. And he talks about, he talks about beta elements, alpha elements, and alpha function. And basically what it means is a beta element is an unspoken lightning strike in our bodies. And we need a way to uh, put that into language. So the alpha function is someone else, say the mother, who contains all of our emotion, and then helps us to create what's called an alpha element, which is to put it into language. So we literally alphabetize the experience. We put it into the alphabet. We put it into the symbolic. And for me, you know, That's you're tough. going back to school is the alpha element. The experience of the beta element, this explosion of something going on in society. We need another to help us put that into symbolic form and help us feed back that symbolic form in a useful way. That's, i think is healthy
2: so the, the are you saying beta when you like beta
1: yeah alpha alpha, alpha and beta yeah but uh, oh yeah
2: alpha yeah but. yeah um, in the say in the beta element is in within or and then the alpha is sort of the motherly encompassing
1: yeah, so the, the beta element is the is, is something that you cannot symbolize, you can't digest, you can't meta, metabolize in some sort of experience mm-hmm. or language. The alpha function is the other, say, your course. It's kind of like it. gives you... So taking language, the bit now. Yeah, and then gives Got it, it back. But the clever thing is then you can say it to alphabetize, which I really like it because it. it's, it's kind of just a beautiful way of saying to, to take the beta element and make it alpha, uh, to make it language.
2: Cool. I like
0: that. Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause I was just going to say the same thing as Peter without beyond, but it's like, you know, the idea that you actually decided to, I mean, in some weird sense, you decided to kill yourself, like with the, with the, um, the idea of I'm going to, to be engaged in a transformative moment that actually like changes my language structure, changes my thought structure, changes who I am and how I approach the world. And like, I, you know, it reminds me of Zizek's like really beautiful thing where he said, you know, whenever everybody's like, we need to act, we need to do stuff. And he would say, no, now is the time to think and do nothing. Like now is the time to think, you know, and, and I don't know if you would say that right about this moment, but I've heard him say it in the past in times that seem so urgent. Like we've actually got to s- stand back and, 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 consider. and once you do that and you're starting to rearrange your being, I think that that's, you know, that really is, Uh, yeah, embracing that, embracing that lightning strike. And, and so, and this kind of goes back to what Pete was saying about uh, language before, and this would be another difference between us, but I think maybe I can say it in a way that's understandable. So like, you know, occult, in the sort of occultism, understanding of things, language, like language has no, there's no meaning to language and there's no meaning to words. And in fact, they don't really even signify anything, but rather words are positive voids. um, And they're positive voids through which um, spirits arise, so it 's imagine creating a portal with every single word you speak, and a different shape of each portal allows a different the arrival of a different kind of being and so what you do when you give yourself new language is you invite the presence of new being um, in 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 your life, and so that 's what you 're doing and to my mind it 's like well, look, <laughs> the world is Really fucked up. Um, things are really uncertain. So I'm going to do what is tantamount to prayer, which is change my language.
2: Hundred so, yeah. percent. You
0: know, and so I find that that's actually a real way to pray in, in in a sense. Like rather than just being like I want this, I want that, but rather taking on the burden of prayer, which is inviting you know the spiritual world in in a different way into into your life.
1: There is that yeah. verse that uh, you know about the you know putting the spirit puts the moans and groans of our being into words. You know that's that's what prayer is. It's a type of putting into mm-hmm. language. Um, yeah, because otherwise, I think if we don't do this, if we don't alphabetize, uh, we end up scapegoating. We end up creating enemies. We end up creating another who has to be got out of the world, who has to be destroyed. And the only alternative to that is the language. Oh, and by the way. What you're saying is not a million miles away from Lacan, because for Lacan, yeah, as you, as you know, what's important is signifier is not signification. So th- here's here's my big difference, but is how how uh.
0: uh yeah, you just caught to the crossfire. <laughs> Sorry, but no, this is great. I, yeah, I'm,
2: but I'm we both that. we I'm both like, just
0: like, spent time talking about how great and correct you were. So you can just yes. bask in that while Peter and I. Oh hate. God,
2: yeah. As long as it doesn't turn <laughs> to me again, I'm good.
1: Uh, okay. Actually, do
0: you want to do you want to come back on any of that that we were talking about
1: before I go launch into my difference between?
2: Oh God, no! Keep going. <laughs> I'd rather die uh, or symbolically kill myself. No, okay. Uh,
1: well, so my, my so my my big difference between broadly speaking, say the union or and even a cult, it, but see if you agree or disagree, is that um, Freud and lacan especially are structuralists or post structuralists they they're kind of they they take on the sewer, they take on the the, the linguistic structural move <clears throat> which means that signification isn't in um isn't in some speech some word so cuz was what's interesting in the way you're speaking is the jungian would say that you know there are certain archetypes that speak of a deep truth um that kind of like that that is kind of deep down um in the structure of the brain etc etc what you seem to be saying is not 100 different from that but it's that but that these words and phrases can have a substantive meaning they bring something substantive into being the structuralist idea is words only get their meaning from their grammatical connection to other signifiers Mm -hmm. so um, and I'm a big fan of Levi Strauss. I know you're. I don't think you are as much, but, but the Levi Straussian thing of like language and mythology is meaningful not not in in itself, but the meaning is is arises out of the the grammatical uh, pairing. So it's a synchronic form of. So I I almost see the occultic thing as a diachronic. Thing where you go back in time and and it connects with something substantial rather than synchronic, which is meaning comes from the structure that exists in the moment within the signifying chain.
0: No, I would totally agree with everything you just said. Actually, like that, that, that because <clears throat> so if you look like a great way to talk about this is through Greek mythology. Um, you look at the sort of progress of Greek mythology. And it reflects what some people would say is the evolution of consciousness and the way that consciousness has changed over time, the structure of consciousness. So, first you have the gods um, just doing their own shit and it's affecting people. And I would almost say that that's Jungian. Like, I would almost say that Mm -hmm. the the, the archetypal forces are the activities of the gods. And that is what Jung still accepts, the Jungians still accept as true. Then you have this thing where the. God's become really interested in people and they start doing all this stuff, just like sort of fucking people and all this kind of stuff. I don't know where that lies in psychoanalysis, so I'm not going to apply it you know, haphazardly. But the really important moment for the occult is when, say you have the labyrinth and the gods are like, we need you to go through the labyrinth and kill the Minotaur for us. Like in other words, the gods are asking us to complete their task for them. So this is the sort of where it becomes, I think you called it synchronic, where um, we actually, the archetype isn't in control anymore. Um, We actually only arise into value through your activity and your activity actually completes and alters our form and what we do and what we become, because actually the earth is here for you. The laws of nature are here for you. Everything is here for you as human beings, which is a completely different, also completely opposed to environmentalism and caretaking for the planet and all that kind of shit, which is... That's a whole other thing, but so I think it's true that like the the thing it arises in the moment through human activity, but maybe not in the way that you're talking about. But still, is closer yeah. to that than the fundamental primordial thing, which then extends you know f- f- permanently and essentially through time.
1: Yeah. I just wonder, like, do you do you do you think that or do you consider words to be things, objects, kind of like that have? they're a kind of internal in itself presence. Is that what you mean whenever you talk about spirits and language that that language um, <laughs> has a, has that type of object nature? Um,
0: yeah. No, because it changes over time and changes e- in, in, in each instance. Well, I, I think, again, it, it goes back to the free will thing where it's like sometimes, they do until we interact with them in a certain way and then they stop having that. So in I'm other words, there is a kind of permanence. what's that? You're
1: trying to have your cake and eat it. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, cake changes its form when you eat it. So, yeah. you know, it is a it's a union. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, so, um, okay. Yeah. So uh, I mean, this is great because one of the things that I, I, I don't have to worry about pulling away from the deep um, discussion about you know, differences and in, in, in perspectives because we'll just keep funneling back into that. But I do want to sort of talk about, you know, something that came to mind when I was listening to your recent episodes about the new normal and all this. So I was just recently, I visited the U S and I was driving through Massachusetts for a little bit. And I saw this sign. It was this huge banner that someone had put on their, the side of their truck like a, their, their trailer for their truck, which they decided to park, you know, whatever. So is Massachusetts was rather sort of known as a progressive state. And it was huge, this banner that said, you know, vote Trump. And then it said, uh, resist the liberal communist socialists. And then beneath it were two crossed machine guns. Right. And I had, I was thinking about that a lot. And yeah, uh, I was after, in
1: Boston at the time. I just got yeah. uh, took a trip out there. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I
0: uh, got it. So I just want to thank you guys for making that uh, a reality. <laughs> but um, I, you know, the the thing that was really interesting to me was like actually the accuracy of listing the three terms together, which I'd never really thought of before. Because so liberal, liberal, communist, socialist, and this is something that's come up on. The fundamentalist, which is why I'm bringing it up, because usually, you know, someone like someone who's online or whatever would be like, "I'm a leftist. I'm not a liberal. I'm a leftist." The fact that you think that the two things are the same is ridiculous. But actually, this person who was talking about Trump was naming it correctly in the way that it normally appears, which is that people really are liberal communist socialists now that I'm sure there are real socialists and real communists and people who are actually just pure centrist liberals. But the ways in which those things flow into each other, and you guys have commented on this multiple times, so I find this actually pretty interesting that you've been able to sort of pull it apart and risk the ire of... (laughs) of leftists, um, or so-called leftists, or so-called communists, so-called socialists, or even so-called liberals, and uh, said, look, actually, you know, these things are rather equatable right now, uh, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Ali, do you want to jump in first, or me, or...
2: Oh, I was just going to comment on it It is remarkable that we uh, are able to talk about most of these things and we very rarely get too much uh, negativity about it. But I I do (laughs) think it is rooted in, I I think the good nature of it comes across because I genuinely politically don't understand much of these different terms. I understand obviously way more now that we've talked about it quite a bit, but um, that's kind of my only you know, education yeah. in the area. So I, I sort of, am like, all right, I mean, you know, we'll say what you do. And then Pete also is very good about just sort of wording everything in a way that is um, gets really right down to brass tacks real quick, which is very nice. Um, but that's all I have to say about
1: it. No, I mean, it's something that I love about our podcast. And one of the reasons why I love doing it is, I mean, I, I cut my teeth in working within, you know, conservative religious world, that I was able to sometimes critique, thankfully, in a way that was respectful and that was within. Um, so I'm trying to do a similar thing with uh, with the political stuff at the moment, is I want to find ways to talk about this stuff, but that doesn't create um, unhealthy binaries. Um, but yeah, th- this is an interesting question, because obviously, um, you know, you, Connor, I'm guessing, would kind of see liberal... Communists and socialists, kind of, yeah, more intertwined than I would. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you. And then we ask, actually unfair, but I, I worry that a lot of what's called leftism, just as you know, I don't think is right. is leftist. I'm an old school. Like, well, I, I, I don't even know if I would call myself a Marxist, right? But I call myself a Hegelian, maybe a Hegelian Marxist. But I do think Marx's critique of capitalism is unsurpassed, right? So. You know, if, if that's what Marxism means, i.e., the the capital offers an unsurpassed um, uh, analysis of the central contradiction of capitalism, than I am. But I, as I get older, I become more Hegelian. But I definitely want to hold those off from liberal and progressive. I don't think progressivism is uh, leftist at all.
0: But they get they get put together in the same camp. So that's yeah. And I, and I think I think that people the way that they're enacting communism and socialism and you guys talked about this on your socialism episode and I think also your fascism episode which is just like actually they're being sort of played out in the, in the same way unfortunately. And I I think you know it's really interesting when you were talking about it Elliot where you're just like I feel like um it, you know you were talking about purity politics or something but you were just like I feel like the people that are like saying that they're socialists are just doing everything that they're accusing others of doing and therefore like they're falling back into a different model which isn't actually socialism and then you were like yeah well most no socialists who think they're socialists aren't actually socialists yeah. you know yeah. yeah 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 there's a real messiness around this terminology at the
1: moment which you know, may, somebody might say, it's oh, all, it's just picking, uh, you know, uh, picking hairs, but actually it's kind of importance. I think, um, yeah,
2: it, I think it is important because it is the talking point that is used, uh, on the right, regardless of what the, regardless of the formal definition versus how it's known in like the popular culture, it seems like, uh, yeah, you should probably, we should wrestle with the words and come up with definitions a little bit just so you can have a conversation. Cause I don't understand how to, how it, it, it that, It's gotten so, um, I mean, it's such a general, you know, basic thing to say, but it's gotten so uh, just polarized in two camps. And then the left is over on the left being like, well, we're divided into 80 different thousand groups. And then the right is like, no, we just hate socialism. And I'm like, "Okay, how does that how do we get anything done if that's if that's where both sides of the conversation are at? yeah and then there's a weird
1: there's a really interesting thing which i noticed early on i've got to say within um, a lot of the um the kind of protest movement is that some of it um was communist and some of it so some of it was about redistribution and some of it was about representation and those are two different things one some people were asking for representation within the existing system and some people were asking for redistribution of wealth and and I was like, well, those, at the moment, everyone's unified, but I'll tell you what, those two will eventually cause a contradiction and uh, a tension. Um, and and by the way, my thought was w- that what grows out of that tension might be the right position. <laughs> that might be the position mm. that I think is good. But I was worried about how uh, there was this, um, uh, you know, th- these were two very different things. and um, And yet... They were kind of being pushed together as if they were the same. And I don't think people had the language to even see the difference, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and that that kind of even, yeah, even the CHOP or in the CHAZ, you know, the uh, Capitol Hill. Um, uh, so it was called CHOP, uh, mm-hmm. which was Capitol Hill organized protest, I think. Mm-hmm. And then the CHAZ. The Connor was- Habib
0: Autonomous Zone. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One of those terms is very much connected with Hakan Bay, anarchism, anarchist yeah, yeah, communism. Yeah. And then another is very much connected with uh, the idea that capitalism is the end of history and we want representation within that system.
0: Interestingly, I think the anarchist critique could be that, uh, that representation, that redistribution is actually just an attempt for representation within a state system. Like, You just want your class interests represented within the pre existing system of the state. And therefore, that will not really be viable. And actually, neither of those. I I mean, I know I would also say that like anarchists, like who say they're anarchists, are not actually anarchists either. Like that term is totally missed out on as well.
1: Yeah. No, but you're totally right. Like the anarchists would be saying that that's the thing. The anarchist position is that redistribution is a type of smiley face on a system that is ultimately alienating and, and, and in crisis. Uh, but you're right, like, I, I'm not very sympathetic to a lot of, I, I'm not an anarchist, but um, I'm, you know, I can be sympathetic to some anarchist writings, but I haven't seen much that I think is even living up to the, the ideals of anarchism, but I'm not an anarchist. So um, the, 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 move, the move to full communism from capitalism, I think, is uh, very tanky. And, well, there, uh,
0: there is, there is. I mean, there is the idea of rational anarchism, which is that we're all actually just doing what we want right now, anyway, and so therefore we're all anarchists. So uh, you may be an anarchist without realizing it. <laughs> but Would um,
2: you describe yourself as anarch- what, an anarchist? I'm an, I'm actually a anarchish. So it's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did that make sense? Anarchist. Right, Anar
0: Anarchist. So. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I
2: like <laughs> here, the, I'm like El- on
1: fire. Elliot did the best. Uh, combination of words of the fundamentalist Hegelian you know, was that it. Yeah,
0: that's Hegelian. the
2: one, Connor. Thank you very much. <laughs> that was unbelievable.
0: <laughs> that's just for people. The Hegel Hegel and Alien is what he's yeah, combining. Aliens because,
2: who are Hegelian,
0: because he's obsessed. Because you're really into you're really into aliens and 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 so forth. Yeah. 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 yeah, I, yeah.
2: I mean, I watch, I, I'm like any millennial who watches one documentary and then I'm really into it for a you couple believe. months and then I'll watch <laughs> another documentary and I'll be into that for a couple months. So, yeah.
0: And Jung is into UFOs. I, they are right? real.
2: Right. He had some stuff to say on UFOs, but he was pretty, he actually was, I think, pretty shockingly, I think he was pretty uh, cynical about it. He didn't really believe that they were real, but he commented on the UFO phenomena mm-hmm. quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But that's well, my understanding. I, could be wrong. I can find out right now in this one book I own.
0: <laughs> what kind of school are you going to? Just that one book. This <laughs> they just send you a
2: book and they go figure it out. <laughs> um,
0: so <laughs> so the, yeah, the anarchist. I mean, I, I would describe myself as anarchist only because there's no other term, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't really like it, but it it's more it's closer to what I would consider myself to be then.
1: Yeah anything
0: else but I find most anarchist writing also unsatisfactory but I find it less unsatisfactory than I find most Marxist uh especially like Marxist Leninist stuff you know so that that's that's fine um it's because you don't like the you don't like the lock you don't
1: like antagonism you don't like dialectics what are you talking about there's more antagonism in anarchism than
0: anything else anarchic because anarchism is like how the fuck are we all going to do this but that actually is and this will be the question that we sort of end with because i think this is the real challenge presented to us and this for me is an anarchist challenge which is like how do we deal with the fact that let me take it to zizek again like this thing that Zizek actually got really like lambasted for. Like people hated that he said this. And um, which was, but but they didn't read the whole comment, which was like he said, you know, there there is an incommensurability between like uh Muslims and Westerners, and you you just can't. Like, they're just not going to get along. <clears throat> and um whether I agree with this or not is, is neither here nor there. But people got on him for that. But the continuing statement <coughs> was, and you let them in as immigrants anyway. This isn't about you, this, this isn't about you, like, living together because you agree on everything. This actually is a principle that's somehow higher than this. So, in other words, he's saying, like, like morality, I don't think he would use that term. Maybe he would, but morality is actually a higher, uh, a higher thing to strive for than resolving contradiction. That actually something is bigger than resolving contradiction. And so the reason why I'm bringing all this up is, you know, we have attempts to resolve contradiction. Right. And, um, and why I started with belief. And so, so let's, Let's do Elliot first, just, um, because you, your life is like, uh, a long, you know, sort of interplay of contradictions that are not really resolved, right? And because, you know, up till recently, as far as I can tell, it's not like you were theorizing, like you weren't weren't getting a PhD in philosophy, or, you know, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. you're just sort of like teetering back and forth on these things and being like, how the fuck do I hold the zoology on the thing that I believed in? How do I um, deal with the fact that I'm not in love, but I'm in this marriage, and I have responsibilities actually to both, like to my sense of not being in love and the sense of being in this marriage. Like, how do I deal? So on and so forth, right? So now you're studying Jung, so you've ruined all, all the things that I that I that I was talking about before. <laughs> like, we're now like, I'm
2: whole and complete.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but 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 the the reason why I'm saying all this is just to say, like, actually, your life is it, it exemplifies. The that ideal that I was just talking about, which is like, there's actually something past me being able to resolve the contradictions, but actually they're in constant dialogue with each other without consuming or destroying me or destroying anybody else. So actually there's a great wisdom in that. So I thought maybe we would start with you.
2: Connor... You never cease to, you're very astute, and that's very sweet of you to say. I think what you said is very uh, <laughs> uh, nice. I'll um, run it over in my head for the rest of the day, and it will drive me insane. Uh, just try, <laughs> As I'll a the most neurotic. Yeah, <laughs> the most neurotic thing I could say. Um, honestly, I mean, I credit uh, many of Pete's books with the ability to hold tension and hold contradiction. I mean, I think that he his work in doing things with, pyro theology and, and every other type of curriculum that you kind of, uh, has going currently. I think if you take that stuff to heart, um, at least when I took it to heart, it allowed me afterward to kind of like, uh, and has a, continues to allow me to sort of have a little bit more fun with this stuff. I think I've also just gotten very like lucky in life. I think I'm, uh, I have a very good situation. And when I look at The story of my life with where I'm at now there's a little bit of like even if this isn't all gonna last everything's gonna be great all the time there's a little bit of like um it's just a juiciness to it that makes it very enjoyable and I think I wish people had the ability to go through the whatever dark period of, of whatever that is now or later and then get to a place where you can start to have some fun with this stuff and start to play with it a little bit and, and hold it all together. Um, and I, I hope that what we, in some small way we do that with the fundamentalists, I think you're doing that as well, Connor, with this podcast, it sounds like. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a weird life and I I'm excited to see what fresh hell is in store for me next. <laughs>
0: All right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a holding it lightly is sort of what you're, is, is sort of what you're talking about, even though I'm sure it sometimes it doesn't feel like.
2: Yeah. It light, that's like mm. a cop out. Yeah. I mean, I I, I like to say I, I hold it lightly, but it might be just a little bit of, um. yeah, I don't know. I, I just try to be as curious about this stuff as possible and try to, to take it all in. Um. I, I do think the realization that we're going to die one day and the, the sort of high volume that we're living in right now helps to sort of keep my eyes open and peeled, and uh, my ears open because it's, you know, we've got a weird world that we're dealing with right now. Do
0: you, th- do you think that that's, I mean, that must be part of comedy's role in your life is the ability to, to just sort of witness, right? Like, you know, the, yeah. I always, I think of like comedy is like, there's this, oh, maybe I don't always think of comedy this way, but like, you know, in Indian, like Hindu uh, cosmology, there's this idea of Atman and Brahman, and Brahman is like the self, and then Atman is like the sort of all that's like can can sort of witness the self. And I I think like comedy has this kind of effect where you you're you're being witnessed, and actually, interestingly, the 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 bridge between those two creates a sound and that sound is like, ha ha ha. Like it's the sound of laughter. It comes as soon as the two become connected, you know?
2: Yeah. I was just writing about that. in one of my um, assignments about kind of comedy needing to be broadly appealing, but also personally specific. So when you communicate good comedy, you're communicating in a way that is very specific to you, but also has a feel that allows people to like access it. And sometimes, occasionally, that produces laughter.
1: You know, I I saw a great meme the other day, it was hilarious. it had how how comedians talk about comedy and they they were on a podcast going about, you know, the the embrace of the contradiction and the lack and then it says, and then what comedians do on stage is like, my grandmother is so fat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tinder. (laughs) That's that's really funny because that's actually I know Todd McGowan like wrote this book on jokes and I remember him sort of lamenting to me. He's like, no one likes my book on jokes and I didn't want to be like, well, Todd because that's not funny, you know, but like,
2: yeah, Yeah. (laughs)
0: like It's the same thing. It's it's the same thing with porn almost. It's like, you know, people write these books about porn and nobody buys them. Even like Jenna Jameson and like Asa Akira and people that are like really huge porn stars, the books do okay. But like they should be huge, you know what I mean? It's like people don't want to read about porn. They want to watch porn. You know, It's a very
1: niche fetish to be like to get off reading (laughs) academic porn books. A very small area in Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> actually that,
2: that second shelf behind Pete is all that genre. So. It's just on,
1: on that. I have to say, I have to tell you this story. Like me and Connor lived together and I brought a pile of people I don't know that well over to the house. And I was sitting and I you know I was chatting away and I just felt there was a bit of weirdness, but not really. And we were chatting away. And then when I left, I realized that I was sitting behind a bookshelf and one of the masks. Oh, you, you like to read or whatever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I was I was behind Connor's bookshelf where literally every book was about sex, and, and I was like, they must have just been a bit kind of like, Pete really likes books on sex. Yeah. 500 of them. They should have known people that you don't sure, Pete
2: will yeah. make sure everyone knows he has a perverse structure. <laughs> yeah.
0: So perversity he wasn't even aware that that was the backdrop. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess maybe like then we just sort of move into that, yeah. That not resolving the contradiction, because that's the thing that's that. So one more thing and I'll let Pete talk and then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll finish up. But so I just did Duncan Trussell's podcast again, like a few, I've been on his show like six times, I think maybe more than almost anybody at this point, but like we, we just talked and he was like, he was like, Connor, what's really going on in the world? You know, like, and he, as in, and he was saying, you know, not like what's the conspiracy thing, but what's actually the crux of the matter right now? And I said three things, but one of the things I said, which I'll bring to bear here, is that like we're coming to a point where knowledge can't save us. And that's really a huge problem. People are seeking knowledge right now as the way out of or navigating what's happening. And actually the thing that will help us right now, which is very much more difficult than trying to find the right knowledge or the right ideology is actually taking an interest in each other. And that's much harder to do because what's happening is that, um, and this, this speaks to the transformation of words that we were talking about in that synchronic diachronic or whatever way you put it, Peter. Um, People are gathering together. So we're two or more, you know, gathering my name, there I should be. But actually, it's becoming evil. Um, The the gathering together in the name of love is actually creating evil. But the way it's happening is a bizarre way. It's like, Communities are gathering together, and within those communities, they're actually very loving to each other, very supporting to each other, and very caring to each other, whether they're anti mask people or they're socialist, democratic socialists, or their identity politics, you know, whatever it may be. But their gatherings are so bound by theories of knowledge that are so completely impermeable that no one's allowed in and no one's allowed out. It's like the Essenes in the, in the Bible, essentially, where they can be perfect Christians because there's no movement in and out of the membrane. Yep. And so it's becoming they're becoming stones, like the stones that you cast against each other are our own communities now. And so the, the idea being that there's an incommensurability of worldviews, but that doesn't mean that love isn't happening within them. But actually, because they're so bound up, the love is becoming a force of, you know, evil or whatever, you know, sort of, (laughs) sort of word. And because the idea is that somehow people have to be absorbed into the boundary, into something that destroys the contradiction. So part of what I think we need to do now is like go and puncture these boundaries or you know, I mean, I don't know who's capable of that, who's best to do that, or to create bridges between these, you know, um, corralled structures of love. I'll do it. And yeah, <laughs> you just just, just penetrate. <laughs> I'll take
2: it. it from here, guys. But, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but so so I guess I'm wondering. I, I think you would agree with everything that I said. I mean, just from listening to some of the things that you've said, said before, maybe you put it differently. But but so how do we how do we do that? How do we come to take an interest in the other let go of you know certainty and knowledge and as as the savior and also and and expertise because the expertise lost out to enjoyment big time this this (laughs) these past four years and and instead um yeah and instead begin to to take an interest and not demand the resolution of contradiction in in our time
1: no it's beautifully said beautifully said and you know in in Lacanese, you could say, you know, there's love in the imaginary, which is, is close to hedonism because the image and the image of the self, there's communities that are very, uh, sealed off n- without permeable binds. There's, there's a type of love and it's a love I would say in, in the imaginary and the way you described the possible solution, I totally agree with. There has to be a way to get, the, get the, the dialectic moving, the contradiction. And to give you an example of something that we did in Northern Ireland within religion was we cr- created a group called the Evangelism Project that you'll know about where we went to be evangelized by other groups. So I would bring a Christian group to, say, uh, kind of an a Islamic society. And the idea was not that you'd be evangelized and become a Muslim but that might happen, but that wasn't the, the main plan. The main plan was that you would see yourself through the other's eyes. So you the, the, this community would go, what, what, what does Christianity look like to you? You would see yourself through the other's eyes and you would be converted more into your tradition. You would see the otherness within yourself, which you're blind to. So for me, the challenge at the moment is how do we how do gr- these these closed groups experience the other that is within them? you know, their own doubts, their own disavowed um, beliefs, their own uh, toxicity, instead of what you do, you you put it outside. And I think that what we need to do is find ways through podcasts and through seminars and books or whatever, is find ways to, it's not that I'm going to try to make you into me, like loving the imaginary, that the, 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 the idea is that I can get you into my community so that you look like me. I can literally consume you with my metabolic structure and you you hold my beliefs but rather that I encounter you and through your eyes I see my own otherness i realize that I, that that i am that i am not as singular as I think I am that gets the dialectic process moving and that should lead to something better
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I love that and I love I love Ireland. I mean, as the example, not just because I live here and you're from there, but, you know, John Hume, who orchestrated the Good Friday Agreement, just died recently. And, you know, my understanding of death is when somebody dies, everything they were becomes available to us in a new way. It's not concentrated or condensed in a human being anymore, but actually it's dispersed and it's, you know, and we take it up in us in a certain way. And so I think that that is the call, is like his. Action, which is you know the Corey Mila action or whatever it might be, where you sit down with everybody, you know, and it it is one of the reasons why, however successful or not unsuccessful I've been, that I wanted to have both you guys on this episode. One because I was getting bored of just having Peter himself on the show, but also because I thought about it, but 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 (laughs) uh, but but also because you know. I thought, okay, we're just very—we just have three different paths completely, and you know, and yet, like, there's there's lots to talk about, and there there doesn't have to be this intense uh, hostile and there might be antagonism, but it's not hostile antagonism, mm-hmm. and you know. Um, you know, whatever, this is maybe making it podcast sound too grand, but, you know, Rodolf Steiner says this thing that conversation will become the new Eucharist. And I, I love that, which is that we'll find communion through like actually talking and listening to each other. And I think that that's the aspiration for this show, but it's also something that I certainly see and what you guys are doing. And as you become more of a union, it'll become even more difficult and therefore more helpful to people. Yeah. So just yeah, drive yourself goal. as deep into that delusion as possible. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I'm already there, dude. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm already there. I'm o- overtaken by the archetype of delusion. Oh, <laughs> <shit up. laughs> um, yeah, I agree, man. I, I think that, uh, you're right. I mean, it's all very, uh, fun. Thank you for having me on. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure I've, um, you guys have given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure you're going to really appreciate later everything I said that was really deep. <laughs> um, I did lose track a little bit during the synchristic part, but uh, besides that, I followed pretty much everything.
1: Uh, <laughs> um, by the way, I also thank you, uh, Elliot, for bringing up my work. I'm very, I'm so so nice to know that that's been an influence in you. Oh. You've been an influence to me, and I'm very excited about as we progress in the in the podcast um, that. That Jungian and depth psychology approach is going to add to it, I think. And, I think so too. Yeah. And Connor, you mentioned the Good Friday Agreement. I think the Good Friday Agreement is a beautiful example of how um, this conversation is Eucharist that you mentioned, or this idea of dialectic contradiction happened because everybody in Northern Ireland was sick of the violence, the destruction of being right and not, and, and basically. The, t- the toxic was the other, and protecting yourself. And the Good Friday Agreement was a moment where we all sat down and went, "We don't know where this is going to go, but we need to engage in conversation." And it's basically one of the most successful, if not the most successful, peace processes in the in the modern in the modern world. You know, so you know, uh, yeah. After maybe, this
2: podcast, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <it's> true. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, hey guys, thank you so much for uh, being on the show and I would really loved getting a chance to talk with both of you and just hanging out with um your conversations uh to you know do research for the show and um yeah thanks so much.
1: Great. Thank you, guys. Take care guys. <laughs> bye bye. Bye.